You're listening to the Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Enjoy. For the last 50 years, doctors at the University of Virginia Division of Perceptual Studies have investigated cases of young children who report memories of previous lives. Dr. Ian Stevenson, the founder of this work, published numerous scholarly articles and books about the cases from all over the world. After working with Dr. Stevenson for several years, Dr. Jim Tucker took over the project when Dr. Stevenson retired in 2002. In Tucker's prior book, Life Before Life, we looked at an overview of the research in general. And now, after focusing recently on American cases, Dr. Tucker presents a remarkable new collection, Return to Life. Extraordinary Cases of Children Who Remember Past Lives. And in the St. Martin's Press 2013 release, one encounters this question. How could a two-year-old in Louisiana remember being a World War II pilot shot down over the Pacific? Or a boy in Oklahoma recall being a Hollywood extra? That and more is the subject of our focus this hour. Thanks so much for rejoining us again on 21st Century Radio, Dr. Tucker. Thanks very much for having me back. Well, it's a pleasure, and I loved your book, and I read it over two nights, and um, you've just done a beautiful job. Describe for our audience how you go about actually researching the claims of a child who says, oh, I was such and such in another life. Well, we do it as thoroughly as we can. This is work that, as you mentioned, has been going on for a long time here. In fact, it's 50 years now, and we've now studied over 2,500 cases. And it varies to some extent with with each case and the, and the type of case it is. But basically, what we do is when we when I hear from a family that their child has, has talked about a past life, uh, I try to um, uncover as much as possible exactly what the child has said, as well as looking at their behaviors, which often fit with with their the memories they're reporting. And then we look to see how well that the child's statements match with somebody who actually died. Mm-hmm. And some of the cases, the kids may say a lot, but if they don't give details like a place or, or names, then it's impossible to verify. But then there are a lot of cases where the children, in fact, have given enough details where we've discovered that somebody did, in fact, live and die whose life matches exactly what the child place to remember. And and the other thing, as you point out in your books, and as Dr. Stevenson has shown, as others who have continued this kind of work, is that it's generally very pressing for some of these children, meaning it's not just a casual comment, but it's something that sometimes comes back over and over again, of wanting to return to their home before, or wanting to see their old family. Or Go ahead. Well, that's right. And, and I mean, some of them, the kids just have seems like sort of vague memories that occasionally pop up. But there are others where they'll be crying every day, basically, to, because they, they miss people from their last life or they want to go back to their last home, uh, things like that. For, so for some of them, it's really a very strong uh, emotional experience as, as well as just uh, the, the memories that they seem to have. Well, and, and as an example, you pursued the story of a boy named James in Louisiana that I cited at the very beginning who really did recall being a World War II pilot and even played with his uh, toy soldiers by the names of three buddies who had been shot down. Tell us about researching that particular case. Yeah, that's a, a really great case. James Leininger is the name of the boy, and, and his case has gotten some some press. In fact, his parents eventually wrote a book about their experiences. Um, 
I got involved, I first met James when he was 12, so he was older, but fortunately I was able to study all of the, the documentation for the case and, and sort of investigate some of the documentation myself. And it really holds up very well to investigation. So he's a kid in, in Louisiana whose parents were sort of a typical Christian couple down there. And when he was little, um, he loved his, his toy planes. Um, but then around the time of his second birthday, he started having horrific nightmares of a plane crash. And he would scream, airplane crash on fire, little man can't get out, and kick his legs up in the air. And, and he was doing this four or five times a week. And I talked not just with his parents, but also with his aunt, who had spent a lot of time with the family. And she said, you couldn't believe how terrible these things were to watch. It really looked like someone fighting for his life. And then during the day, he would take his little toy planes and say, airplane crash on fire, and slam him nose first into the coffee table. And did this over and over again. I, I saw a picture of the coffee table, and there were dozens of dents and scratches where he was just compulsively talking about this plane crash. And then he, um, during several conversations, also gave details for this. He, he said that he uh, had been a pilot and that his plane had crashed, um, uh, that it had been shot down by the Japanese, and he said that he flew off of a boat. And his father asked him what the name of the boat was, and James said Natoma, which uh, was an odd answer to give, and, and his dad then did an Internet search and, and discovered that there was this USS Natoma Bay uh, that was stationed in the Pacific during World War II. And James gave the word Natoma when, when he was only 28 months old. And then a little bit later he said how he'd been killed at Iwo Jima, how he'd been shot down by the Japanese. And he said that he had a friend on the boat named Jack Larson. Well, his dad did a lot of research and eventually discovered that there was uh, this USS Natoma Bay, that in fact it was involved in the Iwo Jima operation and lost one pilot there. So that was the only person that James, his son, could have been remembering. Um, this was a pilot uh, from Pennsylvania named, named James Houston. And his plane crashed exactly as James Leininger described. He said how he'd gotten hit in the engine, burst into flames, crashed into water, and quickly sank. And that's exactly how Houston um, and, and, you know, what's so amazing when you read these different case studies that you followed up on and the parents have followed up on and that researchers follow up on and sometimes other news media have followed up on is that oftentimes there's still people living, which brings up the issue of um, how so many of these children, 70 percent of the data, you say, shows that they died, you know, from accident or murder or injury or something very sudden and unexpected and that the intervals, it seemed, between the lifetime they were called, as a general statement, and the lifetime that they were in now was, was very brief, a very brief interval. Yeah, it is typically very brief. The, the average is only uh, four and a half years, and actually the median, meaning half or shorter, half or longer, is only 16 months. Now, James is obviously an exception to that, and, and uh, the last piece of the story is that when when Houston's, uh, Houston's plane was shot down, the pilot of the plane next to his was named Jack Larson, which was the name that, that James had given as a friend on his boat. Uh, but that was when there was 50 years, and we do get those cases. But, yeah, the typical pattern is uh, once where it seems that the, the um, 
person has come back very quickly after dying, some sort of unnatural or violent death. And, and the, you know, when you look at all the different variables, you all take 200-some variables into each case and you code them and then look at the most important ones. And one of the things that always has fascinated me is sort of the biogenealogy of whether it's incarnational or whether it's thought form placement, but that children who claim that they remember their last life and how they died often have birthmarks or defects that are related to the life before that they claim to recall. Well, that's right. We've had several hundred cases like that, and it's it's, um, usually birthmarks or defects that match wounds, usually the fatal wounds on the body of the previous person. Uh, and these are ones that, that Ian Stevenson, my mentor, spent a lot of time investigating, and he really collected a lot of quite strange birthmarks and birth defects, including 18 cases where the previous person had been shot, and the child was born with double birthmarks, ones matching both the entrance wound and the exit wound that the previous person had suffered. And, of course, th- these are really phenomenal things about what does the remembering of a soul, and how does that remembering affect the next life? And you raise some very broad, I think, fascinating questions, as all of us need to ask, is are these lives that we or a child recall linear, or is there something multidimensional going on like some propose? Yeah, I mean, I, I doubt it's as straightforward or simple as as our ma- minds might think it would be. I mean, to hear these kids talking, it seems like a soul or whatever you want to call it lived one life and then after a period lives another and, and just sort of bounces from one to another. Um, but I think it probably is more complicated than that. Uh, because this, you know, there is this part of us that continues, this consciousness or mind part. Um, it, it wouldn't necessarily follow the same kinds of rules that we think of in, in this physical world. And... Um, I wouldn't think that it would have to be uh, uh, tied to the same sort of space-time kind of concepts that, that exist in this world because it would be something that would transcend this world. Mm-hmm. And, and what's so interesting is how many children who have this recall, and even if they may forget after the age of four or five, and is, is that some of them have other psychic abilities. Well, that's right. Most don't, uh, but some certainly appear to, and, and probably more than more of the kids do than you would expect by chance. Um, but that does raise all kinds of issues, and people have wondered if their past life memories are just learning that information through psychic abilities rather than actually having lived that life before. Or that our concept of what a life is is wrong and materialistic, and the truth is that it's a dream. <laughs> We're all producing these things we call history, but they may not be over at all. And, you know, what was a war of one century in one dimension is still a war. This, I mean, these are all theoretical questions about consciousness. So when you get a call from a parent, what are the things you listen for, though, that make it possible and important enough to follow up? Well, the biggest one usually is whether it has a chance, whether we can verify that the memories match one particular person who died. Um, I mean, we get ones where kids will talk about things that are quite interesting. And sometimes, I mean, the parents say, well, he never even heard of Oklahoma. Why is he talking about death there? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's got to be specific enough for us to, you know, for me to go visit the family and to put time and effort into researching it, then it really 
you know, we hope that there's sort of a payoff that the, that the previous person can be identified. But, I mean, that doesn't mean that those other cases aren't worth looking at. And certainly some of the ones I talk about in, in this book were ones where we were not able to verify the person, but there are still interesting features to it, like the behaviors or, or other things that the child showed that um, I think are worth paying attention to. Yeah, like talent. So we're going to take a little break, and when we come back, we'll look at this child who, you know, believes he was Bobby Jones, the golfer. Hello, this is Dr. Raymond Moody, and I am a psychiatrist and philosophy professor, and you are listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zoe Hieronymus. Please listen to this program. I've been inspired by Zoe's work for many years. Our guest is Dr. Jim Tucker, and he is the Bonner-Lowry Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences at the University of Virginia. His most recent book, Return to Life, Extraordinary Cases of Children Who Remember Past Lives, is a St. Martin's Press 2013 release. And you can follow up after the show at www.jimbtucker.com. And, of course, all our guests and links to their websites and work are at 21st21stcenturyradio.com. So to another specific case, which again shows sometimes children who claim to be something evidence some extraordinary skill that may or may not be connected to a past life. So tell us about the story of Hunter. Yeah, he's a little boy where when he turned two, his uh, parents gave him uh, a plastic set of golf clubs, and he just loved those things. They didn't play golf themselves, um, but he loved them. And then one day, Dad was, uh, was going through the channels on the TV, and when they passed the golf channel, um, Hunter just had a fit and had to watch it all the time. And um, at, at one point, there was a, a show about Bobby Jones, who a lot of people may not have heard of now, but he was quite a famous golfer back in the 1920s. And Hunter said that that's who he had been, and he, you know, he liked the the current golfers. I mean, Tiger Woods and all those, but but Bobby Jones was the one that he focused on. And with his golfing, he eventually got a, a set of, of young children's clubs, and everyone said that he was just a complete natural. So the local golf club uh, that gave lessons would normally start when kids turned five, but they agreed to take him at age two because he just showed such remarkable. that is sometimes what is seen in children who remember past lives as they carry over or, or what we believe to be, if it's linear, <laughs> carrying over from some other time period of development. You, you have a number of interesting stories. One was another child who recalled being a very famous Hollywood scriptwriter. Well, that's right. We've had a, a couple of Hollywood cases. Uh, that's one where 
the little boy said how he had been a writer in Hollywood and, and um, his parents started naming movies and, and was gone with the wind. He said, yeah, that's who I was. Or that's the one I wrote. And Sidney Coe Howard was the name of the screenwriter for um, Gone with the Wind. And it matched the statements that the little boy had been making uh, about his past life before then. He, he said how uh, his, he would insist that his middle name was Coe and wouldn't, um, whenever anyone gave his name, he would always say, no, my middle name's Coe. And, and he talked about how he had a daughter named Jennifer and other details like that that, in fact, did match Sidney Coe Howard's life. And that, that's what's so amazing is the specificity. You know, it reminds me of when people do readings, myself included, of the deceased for the living. And when the deceased come to you, at least my life experience has been, they give you information that is only meaningful to the person you're telling it so that they can be identified as having been their father or their sister or their, you know, great-grandfather that they never met. And in the same way, these children say things that they couldn't have learned at their age from some form of exposure, particularly when the family has absolutely no relationship. But how does it, for instance, compare for you as the researcher when you're dealing with Americans who's, and our culture hasn't always been very open to this kind of thing. It's always been sort of taboo until really the last 20 or 30 years. And then other cultures like the Asian culture where it's very much a part of culture and very much a part of, of reverence for the one's ancients and one's own past. Yeah, well, it's certainly easier to find cases in Asia because the families will talk about them if a, if a child talks about a past life. So people hear about them and then we hear about them. Um, here it's harder to find them, and you know, most of the parents say that they did not believe in past lives before their kids started doing these things, but they've usually become convinced. Um, but, I mean, there can be an advantage to the fact that our culture doesn't put emphasis on past lives because mm-hmm. uh, I don't worry so much about sort of wishful thinking on the part of the parents. But with some of the aging cases, especially if they report being a deceased family member who's come back, you, know, you, you have to wonder if this is sort of wishful thinking on the family's part because they, they miss the person who's deceased. Uh, here, it's usually so out of the blue and so strange to the families that we don't really have to worry a whole lot about that. Um, and now, I mean, there's some cases where with the American ones and with the Internet, I mean, there's so much more available as far as records and documentation than some of the Asian ones where people remembering someone in another village or something. There's not that kind of documentation. Mm-hmm. And for yourself, why did you go this direction in research? I mean, what is it that drew you to this? You had lots of choices. Yeah, and in fact, I'm a child psychiatrist, and I was actually in private practice when I learned about this work. And I, I had become intrigued by the question of, of life after death, uh, particularly when my wife and I got together, and she was open to things like reincarnation and psychics and all of that, which I had never paid any attention to. And um, I heard about this work, and, and I loved the, the approach that they took, uh, because it's a very sort of careful, methodical, scientific approach to this question of, of life after death. And um, I eventually called them the office up just to see if they needed help, uh, volunteer help with, with some of their studies. Actually, the one I called about was near-death experiences. Uh, but that kind of got my foot in the door, and I eventually gave up my private practice and uh, devoted myself full-time to this work. 
And it continues to really interest me. I mean, the, the question of life after death, I assume, interests pretty much everybody. And this is one where we're trying to look and see is there evidence where it can move beyond just belief or faith, but there, there are good reasons to, to think that we may well survive death. Well, I'm certainly a total believer in that. I don't even think it's a belief. I think it's, um, for some people, it's just sort of, I don't know, it doesn't really matter what I think. But I was thinking about, you know, this work, because I remember interviewing Carol Bauman years ago, who talked about her own son, Chase, and that's how she got into the work, not really believing in it. And he had this terrible trauma to loud noises like on July 4th and then talked about how he remembered being a grown man in the war and they had to send him back to war. And she said that the eczema that he had had on his wrist all his youth of his toddler years after talking about this trauma that he experienced being shot in the war, it went away. So the, the question I have for you is when children have the opportunity to to be listened to about what they're recalling and that when they're listened to and there's some sort of resolution, like some of these children went with you and their families back to the places that they recalled and even had a chance to meet some of their living relatives from the lifetime they recalled. But it's not always what one would think in terms of what happens for these children. Yeah, it's, sometimes the families, especially in the Asian cases, they would worry that if the child visited the previous place, they would want to stay there, or the families would want to keep them there. But usually what happens is when they go to the previous place, it validates their memories, which I think is, is helpful to them. But they also see that what they remember is in the past, and that the families have moved on. Sometimes the families are older, or the kids are grown up or whatever. And that's actually helpful to them, too. So it, it, they can see that people believe them, and they can also see that it's time to get focused on this life. And, and um, that usually helps them let go of this. I mean, there are exceptions, but uh, they are usually able to let go. And, and most of the kids, even without this, most of the kids, by the time they get to be six or seven, have pretty much let go of it anyway. Uh, but a, a visit like that can help the process move forward and, and um, let them stop having the nightmares or, or whatever it is and, and just enjoy this life more. When there are many TV shows who follow these stories up, sometimes they do a good job, sometimes they'll do a whole production and never even air the show. How, how good do you think, in general, the coverage is of this kind of phenomena? Well, it's an area that's obviously ripe for sensationalism because you know, this is pretty sensational stuff. And, I mean, there have been some, some good programs that have been done. The, um, one of the cases in my book, a child from Oklahoma who uh, remembered a life in Hollywood, um, a TV production company actually helped me. It was sort of a coincidence. They got involved with me just as this case came about, and they helped me investigate it and, and were able to hire a Hollywood archivist and do things, frankly, that I would not have been able to, to track down the details. And that was for a show on, on the bio channel called The Unexplained. It was the pilot for the show called The Unexplained. Uh, so there are times like that where it's been very helpful. Um, but then, you know, with any kind of news show or, or um, real-life kind of thing, um, some of the shows are better than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I, you know, there are some that I have participated with, and I think 
they did a nice job, and it does get the word out that parents can see that this phenomenon does happen. In fact, it looks like it's a lot more common than we have known before, and, and I hope it's helpful for families to know that they're not the only ones who have had a child saying these things. Well, of course, and then again, it's sort of like watching what media did to ghosts and the deceased has been so destructive, in my opinion, over the last 30 years to a whole generation of people um, in their 20s now who think that every experience is a possession and that it's all negative and one should be completely and totally afraid. And so the exploitation of these supernatural phenomena that are natural, they're not really super, they're just not covered. Um, My fear sometimes is that then when the authentic happens, people are too afraid to be able to um, be be at ease with that this is a phenomena that goes on everywhere in the world, maybe the cosmos. Well, that's right. I mean, it doesn't have to be weird or, like you say, supernatural, really. It's, it's I mean, it's the best circumstance you would hope that people can, it gives us a better understanding of ourselves and of reality, um, but it has to be presented well for people to, to be able to get that kind. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting how in so many of these children's cases, they'll even talk about what it's like between lives. They'll talk about seeing their parents beforehand, before they incarnated, and choosing them as their parents. I mean, I love that story of the child who said he picked his mommy and daddy at the pink hotel on the beach. Well, that's right. That was James Leininger, who we talked about earlier. Exactly. He said he had uh, picked his parents in Hawaii when they were eating dinner at a big pink hotel, and it turned out his parents had been to Hawaii, and the last night did eat on the beach. They stayed at a pink hotel, and that on that trip was when they started trying to conceive. They didn't actually get pregnant then a couple of months later, but the intention began then, and that was when he identified that, that he chose them and came to them. Yeah, and, and of course these are the things that interest me, always have, of the power of intention. Because certainly from, you know, our, our work in the labs with the power of intention to affect matter, it's fairly extraordinary that um, one one sees in these cases an opportunity to watch how a soul's intention can continue on. And what we don't, you know, finish in one life, we have an opportunity to do the next life. Or as these little children will say, if you choose to come back. Well, that's right. The It's... It... It seems that some of them describe having more power or more control over the, their future life than others. But, yeah, I mean, you would hope that with the progression of lives that, that we can grow and, and make progress, and, and these cases certainly suggest that that opportunity is there. And it, and it may be that we can prepare for that. I mean, I, I think uh, there's some evidence to suggest that meditation is helpful for uh, controlling things between lives. And, uh, you know, if we can become more kind of spiritual during this life, then, then hopefully that would, would help us in, in the next time after we die. Um, and to that, we're going to take our uh, break, and then we'll be right back. Our guest is Dr. Jim Tucker. You can find him at www.jimbtucker.com. His book, A St. Martin's 2013 Release, Return to Life, Extraordinary Cases of Children Who Remember Past Lives. Hello, my name is Matthew Fox, and I'm a spiritual theologian, author of 
number of books, including Christian Mystics and The Pope's War. And you are listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zoe. And I commend Dr. Zoe for her wonderful work and for having a program that offers alternative ways of seeing the world and seeing it through the glasses of spirituality and ethics. So stay listening. His book, Return to Life, Extraordinary Cases of Children Who Remember Past Lives. It's a St. Martin's Press 2013 release. So because we're not going to be able to tell all the stories, and I don't want to because I want people to read it and really enjoy it, if you don't mind, Jim, I'd like to turn our attention to some of the more theoretical things that you pose towards the latter part of your book. And I think that everybody in the consciousness work that I've interviewed for almost three decades now are the kinds of questions we're all asking. One of the things that um, different guests of mine over the decades have been looking at is what is it that makes something manifest and what is really meant by dream time? And you, you say you make this fascinating statement on page 175. You say, quote, it's not in the observing per se that produces a result. It is the knowing produced by the observing that does. Give us the context for this. And I, I mean, it just swung out at me as a most important statement. Yeah, that goes to, to quantum physics, which, of course, can be a challenging area for all of us. Uh, but certainly physicists have, have known for decades now that observation is critical at the quantum level for causing results to happen. And it appears that it's not the act of observation itself or, or, say, a measuring device measuring something, but it's actually when the scientist knows it that uh, this, this change happens, that, that things, uh, potentials become a result. And there's this type of experiment called the Renegar negative results experiment where, for example, if you imagine, imagine say, a particle that can go down two paths, where you set up a measuring device or camera on one of the paths, and then you send the, the particle down. If it doesn't go down that path, then the measuring device hasn't measured anything, but because of that, you know that it must have gone down the other path, and that knowing then uh, does what they call collapses the wave function and, and produces the one result. And again, I, I quote a number of physicists in uh, my chapter on physics to make the case that there's something unique about the consciousness knowing uh, that causes events to happen in, in the world. And certainly events at the quantum level, and, and then we can uh, extrapolate that to, to larger events as well. Um, so even though it may seem like we're very insignificant little beings in this very large universe, it, it seems that conscious observers are actually critical to yeah, I remember um, Bill Tiller, who is chairman emeritus out at Stanford and used to run their material sciences division for 30 years. I think he was chairman of it. And when he started researching the ability of mind to turn something on at a distance, which he's done very successfully with, you know, turning computers on at a distance by imprinting thought into a something and then remotely sending it and what he said, and also what prognosticators have said, it's like John Peterson of the Arlington Institute, that it's the things we expect to see are the things that will pop out at us and that then become manifest. And so coming back then to this much broader 
um, inspection of what is a past life and what is happening when a child remembers it um, and then is able to view some of it or come into contact with some of it, what is actually happening at a much larger level? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think at a much larger level, what, what I focus on some toward the end of the book is that the physical reality is really not primary. It's consciousness or mind that's primary, and then the, then the physical world grows out of it. And uh, in these cases, um, when the child remembers a past life, it, what it seems to be is that the consciousness that had those experiences before is the one that's inhabiting the child now. And, and as we talked about earlier, it can seem like it's very linear just from one life to another, but I think mind is such a huge topic in and of itself that it's probably better to say not necessarily past life, but just that this mind has experienced both lives. And um, and then and then the the thesis of one mind that we are all part of one mind, that what we might be calling history is a dimension of mind. It's hard well, to you know sort of wrap yourself around some of these concepts, but it but it makes restoration. I'm thinking out loud for a moment of the earth as an example and the horrors of Fukushima that we're going to cover later this evening, that mind has this capacity to um, change matter. We know that for a fact, and that when we look at something, we change it, the observer effect as you were describing. And so, therefore, there might be a dimensionality in which this nuclear reality has occurred but there's another dimension in which this nuclear reality doesn't occur. Well, that's right. And it also raises the question of whether with enough intention from enough people that we can really alter the course that history is taking. Amen. Exactly. That's exactly what I wanted to say. And and this is very profound because in, in my work for many years in Kabbalah and um, looking at sort of the mystery traditions of a variety of um, traditions, forgiveness is always so important. And it, and it dawned on me that forgiveness is what actually changes the frequency of the past effect on the present. Well, yes, that, that certainly makes sense to me. And I, I think the it's not just mind in sort of a cognitive sense, but it's what we bring to our experience and, and how we experience things. And, and you're right, if, if we try to go through life with a sense of, of love and forgiveness, it seems to me it's a very different experience than if we go through with anxiety and anger and that sort of thing. And, and it can have a huge effect on, on the outcome of the course that the life takes. It's a, and and the civilization. I, I was thinking on this very large scale of, of you know how from one generation and this biogenealogy. If if lifetimes are in some way cyclical but have a linearity to it, and there's memory, some form of memory, that being able to release memory through heart awareness seems to be the highest pulse if you will, versus the ego and the personality that says this happened to me and I'm going to do that. And so we have nations doing retribution and we have individuals doing retribution when, in fact, all of that is already dead and we're responding as though it's life. 
Well, that's right. And the, uh, you know, the, the even physicists have talked about how the past is, is really only exists as, it, as it's recorded in the present. Exactly. Right. People hold on to the old wounds and, and old anger and countries do. And it's at times so stupid that, you know, the wars that have been fought to, to correct past wrongs, and instead of just uh, coming up with a course to move forward, they'll be positive for everyone. Yeah, so, so I mean, I, I look at it from whether it's a child or an adult having recollection of some other place in time. My late teacher, Terry Edward Ross, used to speak of all of us being able to see everywhere and every when, which is sort of like being in the midst of the Akashic. Yeah, and with these kids, I mean, it, it seems as if they have sort of a little glimpse of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it may show what's possible for all of us. I mean, you're right, it's, it's, it's connecting with um, the universal history in a way. Uh, that, I mean, it's not the full Akashic record, obviously. Um, but it's it certainly, these cases are certainly evidence that there's a lot more to reality than just the physical world. Right, than being born and having a job and living in our houses and going to work in our cities. And and I think that, you know, that's part of the beauty of what's unfolding now is, is a greater appreciation that consciousness is the it. And everything else is just the stuff around it. I mean, that's kind of the way I feel these days about it. And it brings me great hope because when I look at the bad choices humanity is making about so many important things, the hope I have is the awakening of, for instance, the power of prayer. Yeah, it just it seems like it's such a slow process sometimes mm-hmm. as far as humanity making progress. But mm-hmm. you're right, I think... We have much more power than we know. Yes. And uh, we just get so caught up in the day-to-day petty things uh, that we miss the potential that we can have. Yeah, because I, I like that you posed, what if the world is a shared dream? Well, I, that's right. The, you know, I, I use that as a metaphor, but it's barely a metaphor. It's almost literal in the sense that it seems to be a creation of our mind. Uh-huh. And it... it of course, with our nighttime dreams, I mean, the, we don't have a lot of control over those necessarily, but there are things that we can do, uh, like not watch a horror movie before you go to bed. There are right. things that you can do that can shape the kind of experience that your mind then creates. And I would hope that we can increasingly, um, as a group, look at, at ways of, of shaping this reality that we have now. Exactly. Exactly. So that, so that ultimately, well, there's... I shouldn't say ultimately, because there's always a step beyond whatever it is the mind's about to frame. So of your own interest, what still keeps you to this? Are there particular questions you're trying to answer, Jim? Well, I continue to... I want to continue to collect strong American cases, because I think they are ones that are are very hard for people to dismiss, and it can hopefully open some eyes as far as... um, this question, really, of, of life after death, which, you know, obviously, anxiety about death is, is a huge factor in, in our world. Mm-hmm. And I also do want to continue to explore these questions of mind, that, that, the kinds of things that we've just been talking about, and, and trying to, I mean, I'm sure it's much more than any of us can grasp, but trying to get 
get a better sense of it, of, of what the potentials may be and, and what the reality may be separate from this physical reality that we all experience. Mm-hmm. Exactly, because, you know, it's, it's sometimes if, if, if it's all one mind, meaning everything is connected vibrationally, everything in the cosmos, including each one of our little experiences in our little bodies or big bodies, some people have big bodies, um, that we could be living group lives. And, of course, there's so much discussion about that, of group souls coming together to Earth at the same time to do the same work together that they've done over many, many millennia. I mean, I've interviewed so many different researchers, primarily psychiatrists, who have worked with their own patient population over the years through either, you know, recollection or spontaneous recall or hypnosis or whatever it is. And and the compilation of the telling, despite what culture one comes from, is very uniform, I find, that it constantly deals with vibrational compatibilities and sort of the refinement of the soul's choices so that what we choose is is good and elevating and integrative. And so it seems to be a, um, a, a, a process by which, as Rudolf Steiner would say, we all eventually become stars. Well, as I certainly hope it's a process to where we can all eventually make progress to be sure and, and become more, I mean, hopefully more loving and spiritual and, and have a better sense of, of this being a shared experience and, and not so much into us versus them kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And certainly the children will often talk about that. I mean, they'll, they'll talk, that, particularly when you talk to children who have had near-death experiences. I mean, they paint such a beautiful portrait of the free will human, and of course other societies, and having interviewed people who deal in the alien question or the off-planet question or the other species question, is that this move towards technology that some of humanity seems so enthralled with is not necessarily a positive process um, if we if we lose our super-sensible capacities that are not being developed, like remote viewing or healing at a distance or the power of prayer, and that then human consciousness becomes entrapped in machine. And presumably some off-planet species have said that that's become a problem in their own society, of that they've lost this capacity of free will, independent movement, um, which is, to me, very extraordinary as an Earth being to imagine not having free will. Well, that's right. Of course, technology is so seductive. I mean, who, you know, who wants to give up their smartphone or whatever? Mm-hmm. But it, um, it does divert. It can. It's very easy for it to divert our attention away from sort of larger matters and, and really the more important things as far as love and, and growth and all that. Um, and the deeper so, ones. I, I recently read, and I guess with your interest in children, I read a report about the damage they already know computers, cell phones, and all this technology is doing to kids under the age of 12 and that they're having more personality difficulties, difficulty bonding, no imagination, <laughs> can't spend any time in quiet, can't be alone, they have trouble remembering. I mean, there's a lot of like neurophysiological things. What do you see as a psychiatrist along those lines? Well, you're right. It's certainly, I mean, as, as the brain develops, the experiences shape that development. So with the technologies, um, I suspect that kids can multitask better than we can because mm-hmm. their brains are, are being wired that way. Um, but there are a lot of things that are being lost. And, and I mean, like you talked about with quiet time, um, I mean, I even find as me, a middle-aged adult, um, 
if I've got downtime now where I'm waiting for something somewhere, you know, it's so easy to pull out the iPhone and play solitaire or whatever it is, rather than just engaging in a little contemplation for a few mm-hmm. minutes. So yeah. it, um, it does change us, but not to be too negative about it. I mean, there are certainly potential. For sure. It's as we always say, it's not the tool, it's what we do with it. But I thought it so interesting when they you know, when, when a scientist talks about a cell phone and a child's brain being fried by it and then you go to read a cell phone provider's literature and there's nothing about it and the yeah. promotion of children having their own cell phones when in fact we're damaging their brains. Uh, so, yeah, and of course the same can be said really for television. I mean there's yeah. fairly good evidence that three year olds, the more television they watch, the more hyperactive. So it's, it's artificial stimulation from a lot of things, not just from the, the newest things, but but even the, the other. We're just having quiet time to you know, use a few sticks to use your imagination to create a story is something that kids certainly don't do near as much as the no. new generation. Well, and the reason I wanted to close with that is I think that story making like dreaming, is a human talent that a co-creator has. And I think that creating and co-creating in the mind is really the foundation of the co-creator human. The imagination, to me, is the greatest source of um, what we've each been given. And when we destroy the capacity for imagination, we really take away the birthright of the soul. I mean, that's, that's my own opinion on it. Yeah, well, and, and again, what these cases that, that I've studied show is that beyond the technology and the day-to-day stuff and all that, that uh, there are things that can endure, and, and with many of these cases, it's not just memories, but sort of love endures, where these kids will have the longing for the previous family and that sort of thing. So, you know, those, these are still examples that point out the big picture and, and that we shouldn't get so lost in, in Well, you've done a beautiful job, and I hope I've done some justice to your beautiful collection of stories. Return to Life, Extraordinary Cases of Children Who Remember Past Lives. It's a St. Martin's Press 2013 release. Go to www.jimbtucker.com if you have children or grandchildren who speak of these things. Pass on your stories to Dr. Jim. And all our guests, of course, are archived at 21stCenturyRadio.com. And that's the show. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Cortner. Our engineer is Anita Brockington, and I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus.